I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a very cool little story about the spice trade, Portuguese exploration, Ottoman galleys, and the fight for early global trade. To hear what sources I used on this one um, and to get a sneak peek into next week's episode, stick around until the end for images, maps, and various kind of uh, uh, videos and whatnot to help kind of give you a better sense of what we're talking about, check out Instagram and Facebook. Just go and search at Cauldron Podcast. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. So access... Uh, I think can be argued, is one of the most consistent reasons for conflicts around the world and pretty much throughout history. Japan wanted access to raw materials in its lead-up to World War II. That's kind of what forced it into the Pearl Harbor attack. Russia has always wanted access to a warm-water port, which has been the root of countless wars, including the Crimean and a number of wars going all the way back. And the U.S. has repeatedly gone to war to gain access or deny access to various other countries. So access, whether it be for resources or rare goods or simply just to get uh, access to new markets, has driven pretty much all nations to explore, expand, and ultimately to war itself right through history. With the advent of the Age of Sail and Discovery, a large number of European countries tried their hand at gaining access to the riches of the Asian East, and they would each have varying degrees of success. The Portuguese, however, were the first and, for a time, the only European country to have any real success at forcing access, and it all stemmed from a nasty little naval battle not far off the coast of a city called Diu. At some point we are going to do a deep dive on the incredible rise and rapid spread of Islam. Uh, it's something that it, it really is hard to kind of grasp, and it, it boggles my mind, at least. Uh, in around 100 years or so, you have this almost brand spanking new religion conquering uh, established countries from the Iberian Peninsula all the way to India without... Uh, without the benefit of any major technological advancement or any tactical revolution that would be a clear explanation for this this rapid string of victories. Uh, The advancement of Dar el-Islam 
which is essentially, which means the house or abode of submission, and then Islam's entrenchment along the major trade routes between Europe and Asia, especially the Silk Road, proved a huge boon for the early Muslim uh, Muslim countries, and and it also at the same time was a massive annoyance for the rest of Christendom. The subsequent Crusades had been an attempt at breaking the stranglehold Islam had, not just on the holy sites of Christianity, but also on the lucrative raw goods and spice trade coming out of the East. The Crusades ultimately failed, but the longer that Northern Europeans spent time in the Middle East, the more they were exposed to the various spices and goods that Muslim merchants were bringing back from far away. And that exposure basically ensured that Europe became addicted to the spices and goods that they were bringing in. So things like pepper, cumin, turmeric, ginger, silk, and various types of, of jewels and timber and whatnot, all of these things gave real flavor to the, the previously bland lives of Northern Europeans. It literally was spicing life up. Because of the demand for these goods, the, the spice and trade game was a huge source of revenue for the various states that had access to the raw materials. Or, in, in most cases at this point, it was a huge source of revenue just to be a country where that trade had to move through or pass through before reaching European markets. So if, if we want to set up a, a, uh, an example of this, say a load of pepper is bought in Calicut, India by a Gujarat merchant. Uh, he buys this pepper for four and a half gold ducats, which is just a, a gold coin. And so then he would move that pepper to the Arabian Peninsula and sell it to a Yemeni merchant at a considerable profit. Then the Muslim trader... Uh, uh, of the Arabian coast would get the same pepper onto Alexandria, where it was then sold for 25 gold ducats, five times its original price. And then a Venetian merchant buys that same pepper, turns around, and charges 56 gold ducats in Venice. And then that same pepper makes its way to a merchant's stall in Lisbon, Portugal, and that same four and a half gold ducat pepper could fetch as much as 80 gold ducats. Think about that. That's an incredible return on investment. So obviously, all this ju uh, just goes to show you why any country would go to great lengths to try and control access to such a cash cow as the Indian spice trade. As the Middle Ages wound down and the Renaissance started to build up steam, the Reconquista, uh, a 700-year fight to push Muslims, or what uh, they were called Moors, out of the Iberian Peninsula, came to its bloody end. Uh, Portugal was sitting, you know, which is situated at the very tail end of Europe, like kind of a, a, like a bike strapped on the back of a bus, had some seriously powerful neighbors in France and in Spain. 
and these these neighbors were potential enemies. So if Portugal wanted to grow and expand, it would have to look elsewhere. It couldn't expand into the main body of, of Europe, essentially, just because all of its neighbors, all of its options were pretty strongly situated. So luckily for the Portuguese, though, a few hundreds of years spent adapting to the treacherous Atlantic Ocean gave rise to some, some really ingenious naval ab- adaptation. Uh, one of my sources, the author William Weir, has a great quote that really gives you perspective about how invention can have this glacial pace and then all of a sudden move at, at lightning speed. Weir says, quote, The design of ships and maritime rigging advanced farther in the 14th and 15th centuries than it had in the previous two millennia, end quote. So think about that. If, if a galley sailor from the ancient Egyptians were to get on board a Venetian galley in, say, 1355, he would probably be able to look around and know exactly what every part of that ship was and know how to use it. That's a, that's a crazy thing to me. And then the same can be said for a sailor in 1650, He's on a, a, a ship of the line or a, a gunship. And if you were to put him on the same type of ship in 1805, he'd probably have a fairly good idea of, of how to operate that ship. Uh, the caravels and carracks, which were the, uh, the type of ships that the Portuguese were using, these were deep hulls, they were wider, they sat in the, the, the ocean deeper. Um, they would have had uh, fairly tall fore and aft castles. The rigging was totally different. They were, uh, they towered. They would have towered above the galleys of the Mediterranean, and they were wide enough and, again, tall enough to weather the kind of unpredictable Atlantic seas. That deep draft we were just talking about, they allowed for much larger cargoes to be brought on board. And these cargoes were both for trade and were good for uh, supplying crews. Because the main propulsion of the ship was via its, its sails and rigging, crews could be relatively small. You didn't need a bunch of slaves and crews to man the oars because you were letting the wind take you, which meant that the profits from your cargoes would be even more. Uh, you'd, you'd make a, a much better uh, return every time your cargo hit the market. And these smaller crews were advantageous in transit and for the profit margins, but it could prove a little bit of a liability in a fight against another ship that, say, had a a large number of sailors or marines. So to get around this potential weakness, the shipwrights of the time introduced what would become the main offensive arm of navies for the next 400 years. They created what's called the gun deck. It's basically uh, mounting a series of cannons along the sides of the ships, running the entire length, sometimes with as many as three gun decks. And essentially, it worked as a uh, a force multiplier for, for each ship allowing them to keep their opponent at a distance and let the guns do all the work. If you sink the enemy's ship 
on their way to board you. It really doesn't matter how many fearsome warriors they have on deck. These huge leaps and advances in maritime design and science allowed for the Portuguese to push the boundaries of exploration. The incredible ancient Phoenicians, we have or there's evidence that they were able to travel incredibly far. Uh, some say that there's possibility that they were fishing off the Grand Banks, and, and there's definitely evidence that says that they uh, were, were sailing the, the, the entire coast of Western Africa at some point. But the problem was is that their, their ships were not able to take enough cargo in terms of food and supplies for their kind of continuous or elongated travel. So what they would have to do is they'd have to get off the ship, they'd have to grow their wheat in the wheat-growing season, and then they'd have to harvest it, get on board, and travel a couple more months. But that took so much time. The, the, the cargo space and the modern rigging uh, of the Portuguese ships allowed them to sail basically into the wind and, and also take on enough supplies that they didn't really need to stop other than to replenish uh, f like fresh food, such as vegetables and whatnot, and water. Other than that, they could just continuously go for, for months at sea and hundreds of leagues per, per journey. Believing that the, the best way to become a, a trade powerhouse was to cut out the middleman, i.e. The, the Ottomans, the Mamluk Egyptians, and the pretty shifty yet shrewd Venetians, These uh, the Portuguese set out to find a navigable route to the Indies. Because of their ability to travel these long distances and almost continuously, they thought that they would be in that they would have an advantage in finding a way to bring the Indian trade or the Indian spice trade back to Europe far more cost effectively. So what they were doing, or what the Portuguese set about doing, is moving along the western coast of Africa, basically establishing trade posts and relations with natives. All along the way, and, and the first attempt was led by a man named Bartolomeu Diaz, and eventually he would make it around the, the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa. As this group of explorers is moving further and further from Europe, the inhabitants that they come across became uh, more and more native and tribal, and to them less and less civilized. So as they cross, they go uh, around the Cape of Good Hope and they reach the eastern coast of Africa. And now they're traveling up the coast towards the Arabian Peninsula and they find something that I would assume was something of a shock and in complete contrast to what they had seen on the western coast. It's basically, they, they come across well-planned out and designed port cities and completely fully functioning and established societies that they were recognizing as as something akin to their their own European societies. In places like Mozambique and Mombasa, these advanced cultures pretty uh, they they were bustling, they thrived and major trade was being done in each one of them. 
and it was mostly made up of of Muslims, of you know, a, a wide array of ethnic groups. But they're pretty much across the board. They were Muslims, so obviously because Catholics and Muslims at this point in time were just destined to not get along, these various states that Diaz came across gave him a hard time, violence was had, and Diaz had to scramble to kind of salvage this whole trip and uh, get the hell out of Dodge. Finally, he makes his way eventually to Calicut over in India after crossing the Indian Ocean. Again, in India, he finds himself in a weird situation. So the local governors are all beholding to the Muslim merchants, and the power brokers basically harass the local government into uh, giving Diaz a hard time, and his men and he are forced back to Portugal. But they had done it. They had reached India. They had proven that it can be done, and the the... The, basically, the middleman, the Middle East, could be circumvented. After his return, a second fleet is sent out to Calicut under a Pedro Cabral, who would, uh, in a weird twist of events, would accidentally find Brazil along the way to Calicut, uh, but he would also make it to India. It was a long trip, obviously, but he eventually got to India. He did, however, run into more issues and ended up in a tight spot being besieged by uh, local Muslim forces, and this led to King Manuel of Portugal eventually sending out the famous or infamous Vasco da Gama to Calicut. Da Gama shows up at the perfect time. He picks apart the enemy army that is besieging uh, uh, the small Portuguese force that was left in Calicut. He rides in with his ships and those deck guns, those uh, basically the, the, the ar- ship-bound artillery, starts firing their cannons and sends the enemy army fleeing, breaks them apart, and puts the Portuguese in a pretty powerful position right off the bat. This little victory leads to a rash of land grabbing and privateering as the Portuguese establish themselves in the area and take any key trading cities and set out to destroy pretty much any and all Muslim shipping that they can come upon. So by 1505, the Portuguese court recognized that if the Indies were to truly become part of their realm, a major push would need to be made to bring as much of the Indian trade under Portuguese control as possible. To that end, Francisco de Almeida was appointed first viceroy and given the reins to a powerful fleet of the most lethal and advanced naval ships that Portugal had to offer. So, quick break here just to remind you guys, if you like what you're listening to, throw the pod a rating and review on iTunes. It helps get us on the list, and it helps to get us heard by more people. If you love what you are hearing, swing over to the Patreon page and donate to the cause. 
any amount helps with the research materials and the recording equipment. And there are some pretty cool little rewards. So um, you might be able to pick a weapon or a battle for us to cover. Just find us on Patreon. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you do it, awesome. If not, cool. Just keep listening. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get back to the battle. As the Portuguese fleet was making its way to Diu, the pinch in the spice trade was causing headaches for merchants and rulers of countries across Asia and the Middle East. The Gujarat Sultan Mahmud Bagada was under a ton of stress. His nation played a key role in the spice trade, acting as a middleman for the sale of spices from the Malukas, as well as silk from China, all of which was then sold to the Egyptians and the Arab merchants for eventual, eventual resale in Europe. Bagada essentially feared that the Portuguese would steal his riches and his country. He knew that would, and, and then he knew that they would kill the trade with the Middle Eastern parties, which kind of gave him a considerable amount of leverage. Bagada sent an emissary to the Ottoman Turks warning them that the trade of Malabar timber would dry up if the Gujarat Sultanate fell. He also likely tempted Sultan Bayezid II with the possibility of controlling large swaths of India itself. The Ottomans were, at this point in time, right in the midst of their golden age, and would have loved to have expanded their borders further to the east. Fearing a risky gamble, though, the Turks offered only a few galleys to bolster the Egyptian Mamluk Sultan's fleet that would shoulder the majority of the Middle Eastern contingent. The Egyptians had far more at stake, as most of the trade from the east sailed up the Red Sea disembarked on land and moved the short distance to the Mediterranean, all while traveling through Egyptian territory. The tariffs and taxes collected on these items and on this trade uh, cargo represented a huge chunk of the Egyptian treasury. And even this early on, the losses were being felt in Alexandria. The combined fleet of Ottoman and Egyptian war galleys were assembled outside of Alexandria, but there was an issue. As both countries were predominantly land powers, they lacked the requisite knowledge on how to pass over land with their fleet. You see, the problem is, from where they were, traveling the, or taking those galleys all the way uh, around Africa, rounding the Cape of Good Hope, and then trying to get them across the open seas would have been impossible. Uh, and if they had been able to do it, it would have taken them, I don't know, five years, seven years, something crazy. Uh, but most likely they wouldn't have been able to do it at all. So what they had to do is basically figure out a way to get from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea with their entire fleet. Between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea is obviously uh, a fair amount of land, so not ideal for a, a naval uh, naval force. Lucky, though, for the Muslim coalition, there was a third party that feared Portuguese power. 
the merchant city of Venice. Venice had cut off diplomatic ties with the Portuguese and sent out feelers to the Mamluke court, pledging to basically help in any way they could without being overtly involved. They also had requested that both the Ottomans and the Mamluk do everything and anything in their power to get the Portuguese uh, naval force under control. Essentially, what they were trying to do was to convince the Ottomans and the Egyptians to take on most of the burden in enforcing the status quo. Because the Mamluk Navy was fairly inexperienced and basically backwards, the Venetians played a very key role in advising them how to dismantle their entire fleet of galleys, ship them across the desert, then get down the Suez, and then on the other side, on the coast of the Red Sea, the Venetians advised them on how to reassemble their entire fleet and set sail. Fearing that they might get too involved or appear to be too involved by the other Christian states in Europe, the Venetians at that point, once the uh, combined fleet was reassembled on the Red Sea, the Venetians uh, contributed a small force of gunners and sailing advisors, but then withdrew their support. So to uh, essentially what happens now is uh, the entire coalition navy leaves in 1507, and it took almost two years of, of extremely slow coastal-hugging rowing to finally reach the Gulf of Kambit and the city of Diu. All right, this is the end of part one. Go ahead and check out part two, where we'll pick up the rest of the story of the Battle of Diu, and we'll find out what Al-Maida and his men are up to.